Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. It is a big week this week. I'm Dr. Shane. We have 21 PhD students lined up out in the corridor ready to be interviewed just for a couple of minutes each. It's our 20 PhDs in 20 minutes program. They all get about a minute. I take up about a minute. It takes us about 45 minutes all up, and they are from all over the place. We've got some great stuff. Let's get straight into it. First up is Alana Forbes from Monash University. Good morning, Alana. Morning, Shane. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on there. You will work in the area of autism and ADHD. And, and one of the problems, of course, is there's no biomarker. So we can't do a blood test. But you're looking at the cerebellum and how that plays into us. Tell us about that. Sure, that's right, Shane. So at the moment, diagnosing autism is quite complex. It involves multi-informant interviews, behavioural observations and checklists to look at symptoms in people with autism and ADHD. Mm. And that means that there's quite long wait lists to get diagnosed. It's quite a complex process. And literature tells us that people with autism and ADHD are facing diagnostic delays of up to three to four years wow. to get diagnosed. Yep. But anecdotally, we know that it can be quite a lot longer. Yeah, that's problematic. And, and so how do we use this sort of knowledge of the cerebellum to get around that? Yeah, absolutely. So our dear cerebellum for a long time has been understood um, as a region to contribute to motor um, control of our bodies. But we've recently learned that it has some cognitive and Involvement too. And in people with autism and ADHD, we've seen that there's reduced volumes of regions in the cerebellum, which are associated with symptoms of autism and ADHD. So blood tests potentially in the future or something of that type? Well, look, we're more looking at eye tracking. Right. So... Um, of course, we know that the cerebellum helps to fine-tune um, sensory motor movement and eyes are part of that. So we're looking at the accuracy of eye movement in people with autism and ADHD to give us an insight into possible early um, divergence of the cerebellar structure. Fantastic. Thank you, Alana, for being on Einstein and Gogo. Thanks so much, Shane. Great to be here. Next up is Chanel Wharton from the Monash Bioethics Centre at Monash University. How are you going? Hi, Shane. How are you? Good. It's good to have you in the studio. Now, you're working on one of the, a big issue, which is reproductive autonomy. So this is this idea of you know what we get to do with our bodies and so forth. But in particular, you're looking at how personal and professional values of clinicians impact that autonomy. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So reproductive autonomy in this setting is really about supporting a pregnant person to make decisions about prenatal testing um, so that they can achieve their family planning goals in a way that aligns with their personal values. Mm. And healthcare professionals are so critical in accessing uh, an IPT, which is a type of prenatal test. Um, but we just don't know much about how they view their own role and how they view their own clinical practice in supporting reproductive autonomy. Mm. There's so many barriers, isn't there, for, for, for patients? I mean, we see that all the time, and it's, and it's also gendered as well, depending on how you go into it. So do we, you know, how are you investigating that? Like, what's, what's the sort of core of your PhD? Yeah, so at the moment, we're really going back to basics because we don't have much information. So we're going to speak to healthcare professionals um, about how they speak to patients and how they support them to make decisions, and then hopefully using that to inform uh, discussions about how involved healthcare professionals should be in the decision-making process. Yeah. Does that start at the GP level? It can start at the GP level, yeah. It involves a whole range of healthcare professionals, so from your GP, your obstetrician, right through to your genetic counsellor after you've had the prenatal test. Yeah, I feel like sometimes we need to send them all out a new pack. With, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so many different conditions where we, we've talked about endo on the show, mm -hmm. we've talked about all different things where really the update is important. Absolutely. So much is changing. I think they would appreciate that, honestly. Yeah, the pack. Great. Thanks so much, Chanel. That was, uh, that's great stuff. Really Thank interesting. You, it's affecting a lot of people, I'm sure. Tamron Barta, welcome to the studio. You're from the Monash, Monash University's School of Psychological Sciences. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Shane. It's great to have you on. Now, you know, this is a disease in my namesake, of course, <laughs> Huntington's disease. It is, is brutal. And alongside it, of course, is depression. Is You're, you're working on the causes and, and what's sort of linking those two things. Because I've always thought, you know, if you have Huntington's disease, there's a good mm. reason to be depressed. But 
it's more than that, yeah? Yeah, definitely. And um, people with Huntington's disease, because it's a genetic condition, they do face a lot of uh, potential distresses, including mm. generational trauma of watching family members have the condition. So undoubtedly there are um, psychosocial reasons for um, mental illness, like you say. But we do see changes in the brain really early on in the disease process. And we have been able to see that for people with Huntington's disease, there might be uh, some neural changes that are also underpinning it. So basically, my project is looking at that and looking at changes in communication in the brain and how mm. that might be related to increased depression in Huntington's disease. And does it look like that we would treat that depression any differently to depression generally in the population because it's connected to Huntington's? Yeah, look, that that is the big question. At the moment, the treatments that people have are the same as the general population, um, but to be honest, it's not really well researched. And it is likely that uh, depression in Huntington's disease should take into account all the different experiences that they have that the general population doesn't have. Mm. But my research at the neural level is using brain regions that are involved in the general population. So maybe we'll find that it is similar or maybe we'll find that it is different and we'll see that at the neural level as well. Yeah. Super interesting topic. One more question for you. Yes. Um, with the depression, are we seeing that earlier on in terms of the symptoms list for Huntington's? Yeah, yeah. So we call that the pre-manifest stage. Mm. So we diagnose Huntington's disease based on motor changes. And there's a phase where people start seeing changes in mood and cognition. And that is when we really see depression being really prevalent for yeah. these people. Interesting stuff. Thank you so much, Tamron. Great Thanks stuff. for having me. Excellent. Next up is Brooke Manning from the Centre for Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University of Technology. Welcome, Brooke. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Now, you work in the area of uh, medicinal cannabis oils. Uh, here at Triple R, we just actually we spread it around the room. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that good? Uh, probably not unless it's prescribed. But, uh... <laughs> um, well, maybe one day we won't have yeah. prescriptions, but uh, you know, I know there's a lot of interest in that at the moment going around. But there are... You've been working on the sort of noticeable changes in eye movements because, of course, when we're driving, we want to make sure that there's no impairment. So tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. So basically, um, when people are driving, especially on medicinal or medical cannabis products, um, the way that we kind of test for uh, impairment at the moment is actually just testing for detection. Mm. So just because you have cannabis in your system or THC yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you are impaired or acutely intoxicated. Yep. So we're trying to find a method, um, I guess, that can identify impairment outside of just having uh, the presence of cannabis in your system. Yeah. And my understanding is cannabis can stay in your system for a quite a protracted period, right? I mean, alcohol seems to be pretty much gone in 24 hours, but cannabis can last. Yeah, that is correct. So between each person, there is quite a large amount of inter-individuality mm. between, um, I guess, how much uh, is in your system between person to person. And depending on how long you've been using it, it can stay in your system for much longer as well. Right. At the levels that we're talking about in terms of oils, what is really required with that to have impairment? I mean, do I have to bathe in the stuff or is the sort of <laughs> levels that people are using medicinally at the moment not something that's causing a lot of impairment? That's a, that's a bit of a tricky question uh, to answer um, because there's so many different formulations of medical cannabis products. Um, they have lots of different doses and people take them at lots of different, I guess, patterns of use. Um, but it really is dependent on the person, which is why the detection method isn't very good um, mm. and why we need to shift to a uh, more like a, a way to determine whether impairment is present based on other measures such as eye tracking. Yeah. I can imagine if you get this right, this can be used for looking for impairment in terms of sleep deprivation, all sorts of other things, right? Yeah, well, there's already eye tracking systems being put in cars at the moment and trucks, especially for truck mm. drivers, to help with um, detecting uh, drowsiness and yep. eyelid characteristics that can determine if people are not focused on the road. <coughs> so being able to apply that into, um, I guess, more like drug <coughs> use scenarios would be very beneficial. Yeah, look, it's wild. It's an area, it's exploding, can I just say? Yeah. I mean, you know, in America, it's a very different game, but here in Australia, of course, it's still not legalized and it's it's very expensive and challenging for people to get medicinal cannabis and so many people are using it effectively to manage their pain their anxiety their sleep disorders everything else so you are in a growth area i have to say brooke um good luck with your ongoing work on the phd thank you very much next up is maria rondon from the peter mccallum cancer center maria welcome to the studio hi Shane. thank you so much for having me it's great to have you in here now you're working on rna which it's the little brother of dna right yeah it's a um is it 
is the way the actual cells um, translate the DNA. Right. And in terms of RNA, I didn't sort of know a lot about the sort of diversity levels of RNA, but that's what you're looking at, how, how diverse they are and how we can utilise understanding of that. Yes, yeah, so um, I, I think many of us understand that uh, DNA is equal in all the cells in our body. Yeah. But the way um, I think you've noticed that the cells in your skin are not the same as the cells in your heart, for example. Right. So RNA is the one that kind of works on those aspects of uh, diversity in our, in our bodies. Um, and my research actually focuses on uh, networks and the vessels, blood vessels and lymphatic vessels in our body. Um, so what I do is actually try to understand how the diversification of the RNA actually makes the function of each cell goes um, in a different way at different at different stages. And then you use that to determine how tumours grow? Yes. So um, we, um, as far as we understand, um, vessels um, help tumours grow because the tumours actually hijack the systems and that's how they get the nutrients. Um, so the importance of this research is because if we actually manage to understand how these tumours hijack the systems or how these systems develop during pathology, we can actually find um, ways to actually hijack them back. Yeah, you must sit there some days, a lot of researchers think in the same boat and say, Tumors are smarter than any other part in the body, right? They seem to hijack everything. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like it's uh, we don't really have to go far to look into things. Nature actually tells us what we do is we actually try to look at the right place and see what is it that's happening that we can use uh, for therapies or for treatments. Yeah, and if if you can do this, does this sort of just switch off tumor growth, or is it sort of retract them? Is that the idea? I think. Either or, really. At this point, we're in a battle against cancer, right? So if we manage to retract them or switch them off or in a way just try to just get them to go away, um, we are winning at this yeah, point, right? Yeah. Maria, great stuff. Uh, love hearing a bit more about RNA. Uh, you know, as I say, DNA's little brother. It doesn't <laughs> get enough airtime. <laughs> it doesn't. And I think now people are, are realising more and more the importance of it, which is great. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks so much for coming on Einstein and Gago. Thank you for having me. Next up is Lisa Felt from Monash University. Alyssa, welcome to the studio. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Now, you work in an area that freaks me out, arthropods. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay with the crabs, but I'm not good with spiders. So are they, these are creatures that have um, component legs, is that right? Yes, so arthropods are usually identified by the presence of jointed limbs, but in my case, what I'm more interested in are the segmented parts of their body, and um, we see that across the entire large group of animals. Yeah, and, and what is it about them that's different? Like, why do they grow that way, or is that is that what we don't know? Well, we know a little bit about the way that they grow. Um, we don't know the full genetic component to that, but what I'm interested in seeing is whether or not the patterns that these segmented parts of their body grow in are stable through time. So we want to see if they've been doing that since the origin of the group and whether or not that pattern is still present today. Yeah. And once we sort of have a, a feel for that, like what does that give us in terms of how we understand these creatures? So uh, typically when you see a pattern uh, that appears more than once in different groups across nature, you can start to ask questions about why this pattern is showing up in these really different groups, especially when those are groups that don't share an evolutionary heritage. Mm. And this is a pattern that I'm studying called the inhibitory cascade that is present in vertebrates and we know that it's present in growth structures like molars and vertebrae and the flippers of whales and things like that my goal is to see if it's also present in invertebrates because if we see it there it means that this is a structural pattern that is particularly good for organisms to use or grow their bodies in maybe it's a particularly solid structure maybe it's just the easiest resourceless way to do that yeah i find that fascinating working out the evolutionary reason for it like was it more battle hardened was it um, as you say resource uh, sort of minimization do, do we have a feel for what what the answer is to that for any of these creatures or is it sort of all in the one bucket this is a very new pattern that we've only observed since the 2020s um, so we don't really know a whole lot about it uh, this is a bit of a cutting edge kind of look at this particular pattern of growth and um, my guess would be that it's a particularly efficient way to grow segments that accommodates um, the way that the organism needs to navigate its environment. Yeah. What's the smallest um, one that you've looked at? 
Um, so primarily what I'm looking at right now are fossil samples from the dawn of animal life back in the Cambrian about 500 million years ago. And things can get really small in that point in time. Um, the smallest that I'm looking at currently would be the agnostids in Museums Victorian's collection. Right. And, and they've got the segmented body parts. Kind of. Yeah. Um, agnostids typically are about the size of your pinky nail, and right. they have about two to three segments in the middle of their body. Wow, that's wild stuff. And all the, uh, all of your samples from Museums Victoria? At present they are, but I am looking to go to Australia Museum and a couple of other locations uh, in America as well. Excellent. Alyssa, thanks so much for being on Einstein and Gaga today. Thank you. Cool stuff. Annabelle Menelaris, how are you going? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the studio. Now, you're from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. I think we have a few people from MIPS here today. And you're working on the role of um, sympathetic nerves on the evolution of cancer cells. So my understanding here is that these nerves kind of team up with the cancer cells. What is going on? Yeah, so sympathetic nerves, traditionally we know them um, as the nerves that mediate your fight or flight response, so your stress response. Um, But in the last decade or so, we've found, us and others have found, that they also mediate um, tumour growth, invasion and metastasis. Hmm. And how do you change a nerve's behaviour? Like, if, is, that, is that what we want to do, actually, sort of take these nerves and retrain them to work on our side again? Um, so that's not what we're trying to do. Um, what my project is looking at is trying to figure out whether cancer cells that reside closer to nerves are more likely to survive chemotherapy because they're sort of um, either protected from the penetration of the chemo or they're just receiving more neurotransmitters so they're um, able to survive. Does, does that mean that, like, in our body the chemo is quite varied in its effectiveness because of where nerve clusters exist? Um, So that's the million-dollar question, I guess. Um, We do know that um, patients treated with chemotherapy, it isn't going to penetrate homogeneously through the tumours in the body. So depending Mm. on, you know, where the blood vessels are, we know that tumours have really um, varying um, innovation and vascularization. So it's not going to penetrate normally. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And how do you, in, in the lab, like what does this look like in terms of the experimentation itself? Like, how do you actually, how do you see all of this? So that's a great question. So what I'm doing my PhD right now is actually trying to develop a method to quantify this spatial relationship between nerves and cancer cells. Um, but experimentally it would involve a rodent model. Um, and then we're using imaging and this analysis pipeline I'm developing to actually quantify those relationships. Yeah. It's wild stuff. I, I think, um, the, the more we learn about cancer and the more, you know, we were just talking a moment ago about the things that help cancer in mm. our body and how smart cancer is. I mean, it must blow you away that it's yeah. able to, utilize attributes of our body that are otherwise beneficial to us to fight against us yeah they're so smart like almost sentient i would say (laughs) it's just like they everything we throw at them they can evolve to do well i guess they've had plenty of time to evolve yes indeed annabelle thanks so much for being on understand the gogo today thank you so much for having me Melanie Muniundi from OTAC at La Trobe University. How are you going? Hi, Shane. It is good to have you in the studio. First of all, I should say, just pause for a moment uh, and indicate, of course, that your PhD was passed last week. It was. It lucky, was. It it was, was. lucky you put in the application before. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing. Congratulations, doctor. Thank you. Yeah. Um, is this the first time someone's called you doctor in public? On radio, definitely, yes. There we go. Uh, now, you work uh, in the area, important area of autism, autism in adults specifically, and about how we, you know, how people with autism cope with stress. How How is that going? Like, do they cope well with stress? What are the differences? Yeah, um, so in my research, I wasn't specifically looking at whether or not they were coping well. Um, There isn't very much literature out there about how autistic adults cope um, Mm. and the strategies that they used. And so what what we did in the research was try to identify key coping strategies that were used and how they related to mental health outcomes. And so the idea is that, um, you know, we were trying to understand, I guess, the types of coping strategies that could be protective and that could maybe mitigate some of the negative effects that stress could have on mental health outcomes. Yeah. In, in this case, are these adults who have had the diagnosis as adults or or had, had it as children and have grown, grown into adults? A bit of both, really, both. yeah. And, and the coping strategies, do they naturally kind of develop them? 
like as in to you know i mean it's very difficult for them to sort of engage with especially workplaces that aren't often you know helpful and kind to their various requirements yeah so yeah. presumably that sort of is a, a coping mechanism they just have to deal deal with themselves yeah i mean one of in one of the studies what we really found was that when we compared the coping strategies used in autistic adults and in non-autistic adults they actually weren't that different um and so i guess the next step would be really trying to find out why the strategies are being used the context in which they're most helpful um and I, I think trying to understand the types of coping strategies that are helpful would be really important for things like the design of um, support and intervention options where we might be able to personalise or individualise um, support programmes to better um, help autistic adults cope in times of um, stress. Yeah. And, I mean, autism's many different things, isn't it? Like, it's such a range of different sort of challenges and behaviours and neurological um you know differences from from even from other autistic people you know everyone is yep, completely absolutely. different so these coping strategies presumably you have to develop to be really bespoke to each individual yeah i mean there's probably several ways of doing this and this probably goes beyond my phd but you know one of the ideas might be that you you take a profiles approach where you identify different coping profiles that mm. might exist in the population and and then you target them that way and it might be that certain coping profiles um, you know, work better in certain stressful contexts and maybe less helpful in other contexts. Yeah. And so I think really diving deep and taking a personalised approach would be the way to go. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Thank you, Dr. Melanie. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Great to have you on the show. Teresa Hearing from, the, uh, from Deakin University and the University of Coventry. Welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. Great did you to travel, be here. Did you travel all the way out here or are you just hanging in Australia? Uh, no, I do travel and I've just been in Australia for a month now. Excellent. Well, good timing. Can I Absolutely. say good timing? Now, you, you work in an area that frankly scares the crap out of me because I've got kids at school. But the, um, this whole thing of the number of severe sporting injuries that, are, that occur in particular types of anterior cruciate ligament tears, that sounds great, um, for kids 5 to 14, and it's increasing. Absolutely. So especially in Australia, we found um, increasing numbers for this young age group. Uh, just in sporting injuries and the sports can be everything from team sports like Australian roots football, um, soccer or football in the UK, mm. um, uh, but also individual sports like skiing, for example. Yeah. And this particular injury that you sent to me, the anterior cruciate ligament tear, which one's that? Yeah. So the anterior cruciate ligament is sort of the main stabiliser within your knee joint. So mm. it helps to uh, keep the tibia, um, so your shank in place relative to your thigh. Um, so you definitely need it for all, yeah, all movements that load the knee. Um, yeah, very I, important. I, I'm, I'm unfortunately a parent who has had a child with this injury that required surgery. So, like, I yeah. thought it was just me, but it's, uh, it's going around. It, do we know why? The increase is happening. I would say there are so many reasons for it, and I was very unsure what was, uh, you know, from the results presented mm. in literature. So I actually talked to some experts around the world, and they gave me different reasons. Right. And one of them could be just sitting down more, or the sedentary behaviour, and then going into high demanding sports when you go to play soccer or Australian rules football. So maybe we're just not moving enough in between, and the demands of current sports are just too high for yeah. children's knees. Yeah. Now you're doing some uh, specific work on identification of yeah. which kids might be higher risk. So what does that look like? Exactly. So um, what we have at the moment are very generic intervention programs that are just placed for a whole team, for example. Mm. Um, but yeah, they are very generic and it would be more helpful to have more specific interventions for children that are at risk. Um, but we don't have a tool at the moment. So um, my PhD looks at um, using foundational skill proficiency, for example, in running or jumping, and whether children that have a deficiency in those skills um, could be at a higher risk of those knees injuries as well. Yeah, indeed. I, I remember in my childhood, I, I felt like I was you know, the most injury-prone person ever, but they never had any injuries, you know. I was a bit, yeah. un a bit unco. wasn't the best. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. But I managed, to get, I managed to get out of it, probably because I, you know, was a bit lazy. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't do as many sports as I should have. Um, great talking to you, Teresa. Good luck with that. I think this is something that most parents fear, and um, the consequences are quite substantial. Yeah, very severe. Um, yeah, I can tell you, personal experience, <laughs> quite substantial. Thanks so much for being on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you. Okay. Number 10, Felicia Bongiovano. Welcome to the studio. Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on there. You're from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research, better known as WEI. Uh, I think your area of 
expertise is fascinating to me. This is malaria, the god-awful parasite malaria, and its incredible ability to bloody hide in the body. How is it that it's so good at hiding from us? Well, there are different parasites of that cause malaria in humans, and the one I'm looking at in particular is Plasmodium vivax. Mm-hmm. And just through evolution, you know, these parasites came from different regions that have different temperatures and vivax needs to hide in the liver so then it can spontaneously go into the blood in say cold weather right and, and it can continue being transmitted by mosquitoes that love warm weather yeah so so we have so it sits there in the liver it hides away person's fine and then all of a sudden weather changes and whammo well there's a lot of factors that are still unknown as to what causes it or what triggers the parasite from its dormant state in the mm. liver to re-enter the blood. Um, it's, you know, hypothesised that it can be weather. There's other, like, metabolic factors that might come into it. Um, unfortunately, yeah, it is still a big area of research to find that out. Yeah, and you do mathematical modelling to try and hunt this down, yeah? Yeah, so what my PhD is focusing on is using mathematical modelling of the immune response to kind of indirectly detect people who are harbouring this dormant parasite Um, because current research is showing that if we take a blood sample from someone and we measure their immune response and their antibodies, Mm. we can indirectly detect these dormant parasites in the liver, which is amazing. Yeah, it's cool stuff. And I think it is such a terrible illness that people get and, you know, around many parts of the world, thankfully not here in Melbourne, but, you know, around many parts of the world. But I think with the climate changing, we better be careful because, you know, it's going to spread into other areas presumably as well. Yeah. Felicia, thanks so much for being a guest on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you for having me. Folks, uh, that's the first 10 of our PhDs. We're going to take a short break for some music and some station announcements, and we'll be back with more of them in just a few minutes. Triple R. Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. We're interviewing. 21 PhD students in a row today. And next up, number 11, is Lauren Alessi from the Monash Biomedical Discovery Institute down at Monash University. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on now. You work on the interesting area of um, the way in which our bodies react to chemotherapy. And one of those big impacts, of course, is people's fertility and what happens to eggs in the ovaries. So what's going on there? What happens to to the eggs when we get chemotherapy? Yeah, so unfortunately, um, damage to the ovaries um, and permanent loss of the eggs that are stored inside are really devastating consequences of chemotherapy treatment mm-hmm. um, in young girls and women who survive their cancer. Um, and because um, women are born with all the eggs that they will ever have, once they're gone, they're gone forever. Um, so it's a really big problem um, okay. and a big side effect from chemotherapy treatment. Now, you've been looking at that, the death pathway, essentially, yeah. is the way they talk about it. And, and the possibility that we could interrupt that so that this doesn't happen? Tell us about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, So many chemotherapy drugs uh, kill cancer cells by causing DNA damage, Mm -hmm. um, which leads to activation of cell death pathways and uh, reduction of the tumour. But because these drugs are travelling through our bodies, they can also reach the ovary, um, and uh, eggs are very, very sensitive to damage. Um, So we've found that they can also cause DNA damage to the eggs, um, and this causes them to um, unfortunately undergo cell death as well. So our lab has actually identified the specific protein um, that senses when an egg becomes damaged and triggers it to die. So in my PhD, we're looking at using a drug to block this pathway to save the eggs. Gee, that's wild. And I assume this has major impacts for adolescents as well, where the, the, the kind of choice is not there, is it? Well, regards. you're exactly right. Um, so we do have some ways of preserving fertility, like egg and embryo freezing. Um, but unfortunately, these are far from perfect and yeah. certainly not available for our paediatric patients that can't undergo ovarian stimulation because they haven't gone through puberty yet yeah. um so and also it's just not accessible for for all patients and it's quite invasive so we definitely need new strategies yeah. to it's, that, that is wild research lauren thanks so much for chatting to us on einstein thank Go-Go. you so much it's been a pleasure next up number 12 is thomas westfall from monash university thomas welcome to the studio hey shane great to be here it's great to have you you work in the area of investigating the resilience of our catchments here in victoria so these are our water reserves um what, what do you mean by resilience? What does that mean? Like, uh, what if it doesn't rain? Do we? <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Great question. So resilience is all about how uh, these catchments bounce back and recover after a disturbance, right. like a drought. Yep. And in terms of 
like what parameters you measure there like how do you know a, a catchment has high or low resilience like what's the measure yeah uh so uh previous research has shown several catchments in victoria um the runoff the actual flow of the water from them has like shifted to a lower state during a drought okay mm-hmm. that makes sense but then after the drought the flow um actually still stays at a reduced rate even with the rainfall returning to right. its average values so we're looking at the uh the flow and then i'm all, i'm personally investigating how the water quality of these catchments can be used to understand this shift yeah presumably the, the water quality obviously if the catchments yeah. get really low probably lowers it you get all the crap off the bottom is that, is that right how do you how do you filter that out of measuring the resilience oh yeah uh, great question so uh, I'm looking at uh, how the water quality from different parts of um, the uh, flow paths within the catchments can influence the the water coming out of the catchment. And so, yeah, when the water does uh, get to a, a low flow, not a lot of water in the catchment, it does maybe increase the salinity, mm-hmm. um, increase the saltiness of the water. Yep. Yeah. Where do you collect like, where do you go and collect for a given catchment? Yeah. Is it as far away from the catchment as possible or right at the mouth? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we're very fortunate and have lots of stream gauges all across Victoria and many catchments, right. mostly at the mouth uh, downstream. Yeah, that's yeah. wild stuff. Well, so important, uh, especially if we head back into one of our, you know, non-La Nina periods. We, you know, <laughs> our resilience after that is so important. So, yeah. yeah. Thomas, Thank thanks, thanks so much for being on Understanding Gaga. Okay, uh, next up is Emily Dennis from the Institute of Physical Activity and Nutrition at Deakin University. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Shane. It's good to have you in here. Now, you're working on nutrition, communication, and social media. Are you saying I shouldn't be getting all my information from social media about what I eat? Well, I think you need to be a little specific about where you go for your information. So looking at uh, information from uh, dietitians and nutritionists, uh, registered nutritionists specifically, you'll find that the information that they post is of a greater quality and a greater accuracy as well yeah and and you're looking at that distribution of of you know quality information where we get it what what that looks like how do you go about that uh so a lot of content analysis so basically we get information from social media from um, these really influential accounts with lots of followers and a really wide Mm. reach and we manually go through and assess the accuracy and the quality of that information using quality criteria and also comparing to academic literature and authoritative information to determine how much of that information is accurate and let me tell you it's a large proportion of inaccurate misinformation that's being posted by these really wide-reaching accounts disturbing uh having the information there is one thing but its impact on our actual eating decisions how connected is that well that's what we're trying to determine and what we've determined so far is that a really large proportion of young adults are using social media to get information cool. about food and nutrition. And they're also seeking things like information about what to eat, um, so recipes and ideas about uh, what to cook. So it's the potential for um, the social media content to actually influence what we eat. is um, It's real and it's potentially very big. Uh, have you got a favourite site that you look at? Anything that's posted by... Um, a dietitian. I'm looking, yep. most of my work is looking at Instagram content. Right. Yeah. Cool. Emily, thanks so much for chatting to us. I will be far more careful where I get my information. That's a great idea. Thanks, <laughs> yeah. Shane. I mainly listen to Felice Jacker from Deacon. Oh, she, Felice yeah. is, yeah, she's great. That's yeah, a good she, source of information. Yeah, yeah, she tells me everything that I can't eat. <laughs> it's all good. Next up is Samuel Widado from University of Melbourne. Samuel, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Shane. How are you? Good. It's good to have you in here. Now, brain tumors. Uh, my yep. understanding is that, you know, we have these things called macrophages. They're, they're big cells, right? They're huge. Yeah. Yep, and they and they should go and fight the brain tumors. Yeah. But they're not doing that. They're not doing that. Yeah. Um, so my research is looking at um, macrophages. So why are they interesting to look at? Because um, if you say you have a tumor in your hands, like a ball, mm. um, so 30% of the, that tumor mass is actually macrophages. So they're present in a very large number. Right. Um, and as they come to the brain, um, the tumor cells manipulate them and make them support um, the tumor growth. And how is it that they do? Aren't these guys supposed to be helping us? Like, what, what the devil these tumor cells got up their sleeve? Yeah, um, the tumor cells are very manipulative. Um, so they secrete or they produce a lot of factors, protein that um, convert these macrophages um, from 
good macrophages to mm-hmm. evil macrophages. Yep. And my research is looking at a protein that may act like a switch. Um, and hopefully, um, when we try to inhibit that protein activity, um, it would convert the macrophages back to more anti-tumor. And presumably, if there's heaps of tumor, that would be a very fast-acting approach to yeah, taking yeah, the tumor yeah. down, right? Yeah, hopefully. Oh, interestingly, these particular protein is also important for the tumor cells itself. So right. it's like double targeting this protein in the tumor cells and in macrophages. Does it work everywhere in the body, like especially in the, in the brain? Um, so it's um, hyperactivated in the tumor. So yep. there, there are some parts in the body that also rely on this particular protein, but not, not many parts. Interesting stuff. Samuel, thanks so much for being on. Thank Stand you for Google. having me. Next up is Lisa Lutzumitkel. How'd it go, Lisa? Perfect. Nailed <laughs> it. All your training for an hour earlier. Really <laughs> uh, from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute. Now, you're working on genetically engineering immune cells to specifically kill brain cancer cells. Now, brain cancer, of course, is such a problem because we can't get all medications across the blood-brain barrier. That's right? Yes, that's exactly right. And, um, yeah, brain cancer is one of those really tricky um, cancers that – purely um, for a lot of factors, really, but the location of it, you know, it being such a crucial point part of our body, controlling so many of our um, motor functions, cognitive functions, and even just who we are, really. So it makes sense to use the immune system because it it jumps into the brain cells normally. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, so research has really um, sort of changed over the last sort of a couple of decades, and we're seeing that there can be immune cells that can cross the blood brain barrier and reach um, into the brain. So, for example, the, the therapy that I'm working on uses um, this thing called CAR T cell therapies, which we genetically engineer immune cells that are able to enter into the brain and then specifically target these brain tumors. Do you have to do them one at a time? Luckily not. You can do them in batch. <laughs> yep. um, and actually what's one of the really good things about this particular therapy is that T cells are able to grow quite well in culture. So we are able to get quite large numbers of T cells that we can then inject back into, into the patient. Um, and these cells are actually from the patient themselves. So we're very much taking um, you know, something from their own body, um, engineering them and changing them in a lab and then delivering them back to the patient. Yeah. Um, and yet yeah, there's been some really amazing success particularly in cancers such as leukemias. And the idea is if we can translate that success into brain cancer, it'll be absolutely amazing. Yeah, because it is certainly one where, you know, beyond surgery, there aren't a lot of options, and especially in paediatric cancers where the, the damage done by radiation therapy is lifelong. Exactly, so, yeah, yes. Bad. Lisa, thanks so much for chatting about that. CAR-T, you know, I'm hearing it all the time. Yeah, it's, definitely. It's a wild ride. It's really exciting. It's so. a very exciting field to be in. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you. Uh, next up is Melissa Mah- <laughs> Let's start again. Melissa Hernandez-Pabeda from University of Melbourne. Melissa, welcome to the studio. Hi, thank you. It's good to have you in here. Now, you work on these northern corroboree frogs, these little guys. They're pretty small, right? Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, how big are they? Um, They're really small frogs, but the thing is that uh, there is a fungi that is Mm. attacking frogs, like infecting frogs around the world, not just here. They're killing, like this fungi is killing these frogs. And we are losing, like, our... A hundred of frog species around the world, yeah. thanks to that. Is is this frog? Because I know some frog species seem to have a they're bouncing back a bit. They're they're handling the fungus better than others, whereas others are just completely being wiped out. Where does this one sit in that range? They're really bad. Yeah. They are almost extinct in the wild. Like southern coronary frogs, they are extinct in the wild, and northern they they are doing something, but they're really bad right now. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, what are you investigating there? The, the sort of elements of resist, or you know, the resistance elements that are working. Is that what you're looking at? Yeah, we want to know like how we can make them resistant to those disease. But for that, I need to know first the like how is the susceptibility to this fungi, and also understand how the gene expression change uh, with the fungi and without it, and also see uh, individual differences and age differences to to see which is the best age to release them to a wild and also if we find a, a gene that is associated with that resistant if we can use it in the future to make them resistant too so yeah do, do we have a good northern crabberry frog arc population somewhere you know in one of the somewhere where we're keeping them to make sure they continue no right now like they were getting better or they were doing better than the southern coronary frogs, but right now the 
populations are declining really fast, and we don't know why. Yeah, not good. Well, in that case, monster, I'd say hurry up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Finish this Save the quit. frogs. Save the frogs. Save the frogs. I mean, it's happening all over the world, but it's quit. it's devastating to some species I know in particular. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on Nine Stanagago. Thank you for inviting me. Folks, we're up to number 17. Uh, Nagas Madavian is from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Nagas, how are you going? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It is great to have you in here. Now, you work on the enteric nervous system. This one freaks me out. So this is the the part that's in our gut, right? Yeah, your gut has its own brain. Is it smarter than my brain? I feel like sometimes it's in charge. Uh, It it definitely (laughs) is in charge of all your gut functions. Yeah. Now, of course, we we take it for granted. But in in many babies, uh, like what is it, one in 5,000, I think you said, this is not working right. Yeah, so in one in 5,000 babies, um, the enteric nervous system doesn't develop completely. This is called Hirschsprung disease, and mm. unfortunately these children face a lot of debilitating symptoms and it can even lead to death. Yeah, what, what does it mean, like that nervous system part, like what does it do in a baby's stomach? Like why do, why do we need it so much? So we need it to be able to um, push contents through the gut, but also immune regulation, um, absorption. So these babies end up with really chronic constipation, um, inflammation of their gut. They ended up with they end up with distended bowels, mm. um, and can end up with really severe infections of the gut as well. So, so what do we do? So the treatment is life-saving and it's actually surgical removal of the bowel segment that actually does not have those neurons. Oh, right, yeah. Um, And they reconnect the supposedly um, normal remaining bowel back to the anus. And and what specifically are you looking at in that space? So I'm looking at other cells that are important for gut motility, so the movement of contents Mm -hmm. through the gut. I'm looking directly in those removed specimens um, of human colon and seeing how they're distributed throughout the gut as well as how they can um, change gut function. Yeah, do you remember the good old days when the gut was simple and we yeah. didn't understand all this stuff? <laughs> I mean, I remember, you know, when I started doing the show 30 years ago, it was just the gut. <laughs> it was simple. We guess on that was a simple place. Now it's a whole brain down there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Wild, it's wild stuff. We're doing poo transplants. We're doing all sorts of yeah. stuff. It's, uh, it's a wild ride. Uh, I guess thanks so much for being on Einstein and Gogo today. You. Interesting stuff. Alrighty, we are flying through them, folks. We have about three left. Number 18 is Matthew Rowe, also from the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Matthew, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Shane. Now, you also work on the intestines. I uh, do. you got people at MIPS. What's going yeah, on? Yeah, there's Everyone, a couple of us around, okay, I guess. You're all playing with the gut. Um, now, there's apparently a layer of mucus that keeps bacteria away. I did not know this. Where is yeah. this mucus layer? Yeah, so it's actually present along the entire length of the intestines. And in particular, I focus on the colon. There's actually two layers of uh, mucus there. And yeah, like you said, they're really important in keeping bacteria away. How thick is this mucus layer? Uh, it's much thicker in humans than it is in, uh, well, say, ana- other animal models that we might work with. But it's a couple of hundred micron, which okay. might seem small, but um, huge, it is actually. quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So old microscopists, you know, anything bigger than the human hair in width is huge, yeah, right? That's, so right? that's about double the width of a human hair, so that's yep. big. Now, when we get certain diseases, this mucus changes. Yeah, that's right. So the mucus layer is uh, quite a crucial component, and... Typically, it can be disrupted, and this might allow bacteria to now pass through it and make contact with our intestines, which then causes inflammation and a variety of other uh, health problems. Yeah. So what are you looking at in terms of that layer? Yeah, so I'm in particular looking at the cells that are producing this mucus, and they're called goblet cells. And so what I want to understand is, are these goblet cells, or how are these goblet cells changed in disease? So are they secreting less mucus, or is the mucus that they're, they're producing are lacking in certain factors that might allow bacteria to now pass through. Does it get damaged by all sort of the diseases we get together, or are there some that really stand out as problematic? So there's a few, um, in particular things like colitis or inflammatory bowel disease you might have heard of. They're yeah. definitely known to have disrupted uh, mucus barriers, but we're also looking at a disease like Nargis mentioned, Hirschsprung's disease, and trying to understand mm. if this is also the case in uh, uh, Hirschsprung's disease, and could this be another reason why people experience complications? Yeah, presumably there's a bit of a circular problem here too, isn't there? You get the disease, it affects the gut, the gut then makes you more susceptible to the disease, is that? Yeah, yeah. so, uh, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a really challenging um, area to try and tease out uh, how we might approach it for therapy. Yeah, interesting. Matt, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Shane. Next up, uh, number 19 is Maya Wild from the University of Queensland. Maya, did you come all the way down for the show? <laughs> no, I, I do live in Melbourne now. But, Damn it. Yeah. I was hoping you'd say yes. Uh, now, you study how sound is processed in the brains of, of fish. 
Why did you choose fish? They're kind of small. I assume you use zebrafish. Yes, yeah, yeah and uh, baby zebrafish. So the whole fish right. could fit on your fingernail. Um, wow. So then obviously the brain is even smaller than that. Um, but there's really good reasons to use these, actually. So they're transparent, which mm-hmm. means we can see the see brain through, yep. Yep, through the skin and the skull. Um, they're also really well studied genetically. So if we want to go in and make any genetic alterations, we can do that more easily than with other species of fish. But also these fish, we've given them a... Um, a special ability in their neurons and their uh, brain cells that means that they light up when they're active. Mm. So with that transparency, it means we can put them underneath a microscope and then when we play them sounds, we can see different parts of their brain light up um, that are to do with understanding those sounds. That is wild, can yeah. I just say. Now, you use that to then look at how autistic brains process sound differently. How, yeah. do you, how does that mimic like an autistic brain in a, in a fish? So this, this ties into the genetic um, manipulability of these yep. fish. So we have several different genes. Autism is very complicated genetically. Mm. Um, so there's thousands of genes that could be involved. And we have several different fish with mutations in these genes. And then looking at the difference in the activity of the brains in those ones with the mutations compared to the ones without. Yeah, it is wild stuff. The fact that you can see the brains of these fish. I've always thought zebrafish were like these remarkable things. Had a few in my aquariums in the day. Didn't put them under the microscope. But you <laughs> how, many, how many fish are in the tank? Um, well, so when we're studying their brains, we're doing it one at a time. Right, yeah. So we need to hold them still using a see-through jelly so that yep. they stay underneath Alive. the microscope. Yep. Otherwise, they swim away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always wondered yeah. that. So a see-through jelly, and it's just kind of it's a bit harder to swim through. Yeah, they exactly, so that, so that they don't swim away from where the microscope is. That's wild stuff. Maya, thanks so much for coming on Einstein to Go Go today. Thanks for having me. Next up is Marina Yakov from the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Research Institute. Marina, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Shane. Very excited to be here today. I'm very excited to have you on here. Now, you work in an area which uh, I have to say is a little bit close to close to home for me because I just did my bowel cancer I test saw it and over the last couple of days, and uh, it's not as disgusting as it sounds, folks. Um, and it's, actually, uh, it's a lot less disgusting than I thought it would be so if you've got one sitting on the shelf at home do it only took me 18 months guilty um but you work on the microbiome in the in how it affects colorectal cancer yeah exactly so yeah i guess this is a great time to tell everybody to go get screened because there's definitely been an increase in the incidence of early onset colorectal cancer so Mm. we now know that it's not just a disease that affects older patients or people that have genetic predispositions to this um and it's one very close to my heart actually um but I guess, yeah, so the way that uh, my PhD is sort of um, going about right now is looking at how two very important components of colorectal cancer are um, interacting with each other. And so if you look, if we set the scene a little bit here in the in the gut, what we have are the largest population of immune cells sitting in the body um, right there, very close contact to the largest body of microbes that are found on or within our human bodies. Right. And so these are bacteria, viruses, fungi. So understanding the interactions between these two um, components is really critical to, to figure out how they may be um, uh, affecting each other to promote or uh, promote colorectal cancer or even um, prevent it, for example. We're talking poo, poo transplants again. Is that where we're heading? Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's, that's an incredible great space. And I guess those, those seminal studies 10 to 15 mm. years ago that really showed that that was um, um, important for you know, patient response to immunotherapies, for example, but also in terms of colitis and all the other um, IBD uh, diseases in, in the gut. The problem with that, though, is that we, we haven't been able to identify what's actually happening. Right. We just know that. If you do that, it works. So yeah, I guess yeah. that's where my PhD is really focused on. We've just recently resubmitted our paper, um, which just kind of shows that uh, gamma delta T cells, which are the cells that we are really interested in, are really cl- critical for um, preventing colorectal cancer and protecting us. And so how do they particularly function with the microbes? And understanding that interaction in a much more deeper level is, is super important. Yeah. Presumably, like, all this comes back to our diets and so forth. Absolutely. Well, it doesn't. So if our microbiome is, is garbage, yeah. that presumably has an impact on, on how this interaction takes place. Yeah, for sure. So that, but also you've got to remember, Shane, in the last um, 100 years or so, we've had the um, uh, we've had antibiotics come into play, right? Yeah. So how does the fact that we take antibiotics for other diseases affect the composition of our gut microbiome? And how does that then affect 
colorectal cancer, for example. Yeah, geez, it's uh, we think they're good, but uh, yeah. I try to avoid antibiotics unless I absolutely have to. Yeah, good. Because uh, don't I know take them for any viruses. It just <laughs> <laughs> see, folks. Uh, I admitted to Marina earlier in the green room that I accidentally mixed up mixed up bacteria and viruses, and it comes back and bites you. Yeah, you know, that's uh, very nice. Uh, but yeah, it's obviously something that, that does a lot of damage to our microbiome and, yeah, and takes time to repair. So the more often we do that, the more problematic it is, and often people don't have a choice. But you know. We need to think of other ways to deal with that. Marina, thanks so much for being thanks on so Instagram. Go-Go. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Finally, James Boyle, you've been waiting patiently all this time from Swinburne University of Technology. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you in. Now, you're looking at driver feedback, uh, so in-vehicle telemetrics. What for? Uh, yeah, so basically we're using in-vehicle telematics to sort of relay information about driving behaviour to young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're looking at braking behaviour, acceleration behaviour and speeding. Um, if they exhibit any of these behaviours, we've got a little light set up in their car and it'll go red if they do something bad. <laughs> if not, it's blue. So, right. So you've yeah. got to stay in the blue? Uh, stay in the blue. That's the goal. And do you find that that then changes their behaviour? Is that Because presumably the goal is to change behaviour, but does the red light lead to behavioural change? Uh, yeah. So especially in the first two weeks... We're uh, seeing changes. Um, it seems like people sort of take a step back after the two weeks and right. sort of get used to the light. But, yeah, we're hoping that it will lead to safer roads. Is there a reason why it's a light and not a buzzer? Or a small electric shock? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that wouldn't get through ethics, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that light, but not a, not a sound. or Because a lot of cars already have sounds for speeding and so forth in, involved. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, the rationale for going with the light is just in their eye line when they're right. looking at the road. Um, a few people in our previous studies haven't liked noises and stuff while they're driving. Right. It's sort of more distracting for them. So, yeah, yeah it's light it is. Listening to music and stuff as well. So, yeah, the yeah, light's exactly. a, a good way to go. Well, you know, hopefully we'll just replace all of us, uh, you know, meat sacks with self-driving cars at some stage and this won't be an issue. But in the interim, James, I'm glad that you're working on this and hopefully it will have some behavioural changes. Thanks yeah, so much happy. for being on Einstein and Gogo. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Folks, uh, that's all of our 2020. We're going to take a short break for some music and we will be back in just a moment. Sorry, it's for station announcements. Very important stuff. Triple R. Uh, Dr. Laura, we yeah. finished the 20 and 20. You've been guiding people in and out. I you should did say it. thanks for help. Absolute pleasure. Help. It's been what, amazing. What a wild ride. I mean, the amount of science going on in Melbourne. Pleasure. It's wild. It's incredible. It's wild. And the PhD students, frankly, are the best yeah. at telling their stories. I love it. My job is easy when they're in here, although there are 21 of them. It's a bit of a challenge to remember them all. But we're going to hand over to the next show now. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back with more science next week. Remember... Science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane, and we will chat to you again soon. And a huge thanks to all the PhD students. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.